Hello and welcome to DLA Piper's Tech Disputes Looking to the Future podcast. I'm Philip Kelly, a litigation and arbitration partner here at DLA Piper, and I co-chair our specialist technology disputes group in the UK. In this short series of podcasts, I'll be joined by some of our leading lawyers to discuss the most exciting developments in tech, the legal implications, and what they might mean for you and your business. Welcome back and to episode two of this series. In the first episode, we looked at the world of non-fungible tokens. In the second episode, I'm very pleased to be joined again by Dan Jewell, legal director in our technology disputes team. So today we're going to talk about smart contracts, or perhaps more accurately, smart legal contracts, which is how the Law Commission recently defined them in their advice to the UK government last year on the topic in 2021. So let's start by being clear what it is that we're talking about, what we mean by smart legal contracts. So Dan, what's the difference between a smart legal contract and a plain old common or garden smart contract? Well, a smart contract is essentially a computer program which runs automatically without the need for human intervention when predetermined conditions are met. So for example, if condition A occurs, then step B will be executed. So use cases of that sort of thing in the financial services sector include, for example, facilitation of algorithmic trading and monitoring in the derivatives market. And ISDA has actually published a number of papers in relation to this. The automation of syndicated loan transactions, as well as peer-to-peer transactions in the context of decentralized finance. When the Law Commissioner and when we are going to be referring to smart legal contracts, we're referring specifically to legally binding contracts in which some or all of the contractual obligations are defined in and or performed automatically by a computer program. Smart legal contract is a bit of a mouthful, though. Let's just, for brevity's sake, refer to them as smart contracts for the purpose of this podcast. Yeah, good idea. Let's do that. So one of the important things to think about with smart contracts is they have a a unique form. They have a form in which, because that automation that you mentioned, Dan, they are implemented by code. But that's only half the picture, really. There's probably within that three different variations of the form of a contract that you need to be aware of. And depending on which there's variations, different kinds of issues are going to arrive. So the first variation is where you will have alongside your code, a natural language contract, which will set out what the legal terms of the contract are and the contracts implemented by the underlying code. Second variation is where you don't have a natural language contract. You have both the language of the contract in code and the performance of the contract in code as well. And then the final type, as you might have guessed, is a hybrid where you have the language of the contract in a natural language version and also a version in code. But again, as with all the others, that would be something where the contract itself is implemented by the code. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the key points from that is that parties need to give thought in advance is what is the role of code going to be in the contract? And in particular, whether the code is intended both to define the contractual obligations and perform them or just perform them. 
Yeah. And then just complicate matters further. When we're talking about code, there's actually two types of code that we need to think of. So the first is your high level programming code, the high level programming language, which is used to actually sort of code the program itself. And then you have the low level machine code, which is what the high level code is converted into. And that essentially is binary and enables the machine to implement the piece of program or the software. The key sort of distinction between those two things is that can humans read them? In terms of high-level programming code, people with a background in software development will be able to read and understand that code to a certain extent. The low-level machine code in binary, well, that's a very different picture and it's probably very difficult, if, if not even impossible, for a human to read that code. Yeah, I mean, it reminds you of that film, The Matrix, where he could see things in code. But yeah, when we're, when we're talking about the role of code here, we're talking about high level source code. And that source code would generally include comments in the programmer to explain what that source code is intended to do. And in light of that, it's important to define somewhere to the extent possible what the contractual effect of the code is intended to be. And in particular, What's the role of those non-executable comments in the code? Are they intended to have contractual effect? And if so, it's important that they're reviewed by or, or under the guidance of the party's legal teams to ensure that they accurately reflect the intention of the parties. Yeah. And then equally, where it's a hybrid contract where you've got your natural language version and you've got your code version, then you're going to have issues that will arise as to which of those two versions will take precedence in the event that there is a conflict between them. So the natural language version says and means one thing, the code version, and someone can read it, says and means something else. Now, you know, taking a step back, that's, that's not an issue that's unique to smart contracts. It's the kind of issue that you see in contracts all the time. You might have a contract that is actually written in two different languages, you know, English and French, and you'll have a clause which says, well, the English version will take precedence or the French version will take precedence. Or you, you might see it where you've got, you know, provisions which deal with the same thing in the main body of agreement or in the schedules. And again, you will have sort of clauses which say which of those should take precedence. So where you've got a hybrid smart contract, it's really important to have the same kind of precedence clause so that you know which of the two versions will take precedence. And certainly from a, you know, a legal advisor's perspective, I think we would always say that uh, the natural language version should take precedence because that's probably going to be more likely to reflect the intention of the parties who enter into that contract rather than the the intention of the people responsible for programming the contract. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see it, that sort of precedence provision a lot in construction. And as you say, it's, it's for exactly the same reason as that. You have a lot more control over the language version because that's the version that, you know, lawyers and the, the client, the business side of the client will pour over rather than the comments put in there by the coder into the high level code to explain to future coders what things are supposed to do. But another important point that you need to give thought to when you're drafting a smart contract is how risks are to be contractually allocated. For example, if there are inaccurate data inputs or bugs and coding errors or performance issues caused by external factors, such as IT upgrades or hacking, or even actually misunderstandings as to how the underlying code should perform. And that can perhaps be where misunderstandings come in on the programmer side, as opposed to on the legal side. 
Yeah, and that's where you get that balance, don't you, between you know, smart contracts, they bring the massive benefits associated with automation. You know, when X happens, then Y, if the price reaches this amount, then purchase this quantity. They're the real benefits you get that are associated with smart contracts. But also in terms of balance, that brings the risk of well, what if something goes wrong what if the program doesn't function correctly? It doesn't execute that instruction or there's some sort of weird side use case that no one had anticipated. Where do those risks lie? And does your contract allocate responsibility for those risks? And I think, you know, most of those risks can be foreseen. And certainly, you know, as the market evolves and becomes more mature, there will be more knowledge and experience of these risks, how they emerge in practice. Uh, and people will be able to take account of those when they're preparing their contracts and allocate risks accordingly. Yeah, exactly. And there have been cases where that's happened, where a code has performed as intended in a sense. You know, the code aspect is to buy at the lowest value available in the market. But when something's gone wrong with the market and the lowest value is a potentially ridiculously high value that, you know, would have just been outside the, you know, the expectations of the parties. Who takes that risk then? So, yeah, exactly. Another risk or another key point, rather, that it's very important for parties to smart contracts to give thought to when drafting their contracts is the governing law and jurisdiction aspect. So where you're dealing with issues of choice of governing law, which is the substantive law governing the party's contractual obligations and jurisdiction, which is the forum where a dispute will be determined, it's important to think about how those laws will regulate those contracts and what the, you know, what the provisions are of those laws and how easily you could enforce a judgment, you know, in whatever jurisdiction that you're looking at. So, I mean, smart contracts, they're commonly deployed using distributed ledger technology or DLT for short. And a DLT system can either be permissioned or permissionless. Permissioned DLT systems tend to be private, have a central administrator who admits participants based on satisfying the various onboarding criteria and who enforces the rules of the system. And such systems can impose terms on users, such as the requirement for them to sign up to a user agreement in order to use the system, which can specify, amongst other things, the governing law of the transactions on the system and the forum with jurisdiction if there's a dispute. In contrast, permissionless systems require no such authorization to perform activities on the system. Permissionless systems tend to be public and, and generally accessible by anyone. And many cryptocurrency networks, such as you know, those that you can buy and sell Bitcoin, are permissionless. And there's considerably um, there's considerable uncertainty as to whether any you know, binding rules can be imposed on participants of those types of systems. The upshot of that is that for those permissionless systems, the law governing the transactions on those systems and the forums where disputes should be heard is unclear. You just don't have that sense of certainty in advance. Yeah. And, you know, these kind of issues, the choice of law and the choice of jurisdiction, I mean, you know, they're not unique to smart contracts by any means. You know, lawyers have been advising on those choices for as uh, well, for as long as time. It certainly feels that way for me anyway. But, you know, going back to basics, why is this important? Well, you know, the reason is until you know the governing law, you can't have any real certainty 
as to the meaning and effect of what is in your contract. Contracts are never interpreted in a vacuum. And the choice of governing law can have really dramatic impact on way, you know, a contract is interpreted. So you might have exactly the same term or exactly the same clause that can have one meaning under governing law A and a completely different meaning under governing law B. So that's why it's important. And in terms of, well, what's specific to smart contracts that relates to that, I think probably one of the key points here smart contracts that we talked about, they are going to involve novel issues or novel items in the way that things play out, not necessarily, you know, conceptually subject matter, but the way that they actually happen in practice. So I think it's important that you choose a governing law where you can have some confidence that that law will be able to grapple with those novel kind of issues. Yeah, that's right. And we mentioned the Law Commission's advice to the UK government earlier and their advice to the government. And it essentially echoed earlier 2019 legal statement that was issued by the UK Jurisdiction Task Force. The conclusion was that English law is in good shape to determine issues arising from smart contracts, particularly in light of the flexible nature of common law. So, the existing common law uh, system and decisions made by the courts can be expanded, adapted to deal with and bring in these novel issues relating to smart contracts. It's also worth noting, I think, on just on governing law that it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to include a coded choice of law clause. So that's one aspect that should be set out in the natural language because it's important to get that clause right. Yeah, absolutely. And then equally crucial is getting the choice of jurisdiction right. And just importantly, making sure that the choice is clear. So when we talk about jurisdiction, we mean what is the forum where any dispute is going to be determined? So is that a court or is it arbitration, something else, adjudication or expert termination, for instance? You know, if it's a court, then the courts of which country? If it's an arbitration, which set of arbitral rules will apply? So it's very important to have have that choice clear because if it's not clear, then it can have really you know serious implications for the substantive disputes. So if, if it's not clearly defined, you might have parallel proceedings being run in two different jurisdictions where you know two different courts or two different arbitral tribunals are hearing the same issues, that's going to bring extra cost and expense to the parties. Uh, in an extreme case, you might end up with two inconsistent judgments going the other way, or it might lead to you know tactical or satellite litigation over jurisdiction where you have a big battle. Your first battle is which court or tribunal should, should this be in? And those kind of jurisdiction challenges, they can take sometimes years to resolve. So it's important to have clarity as to your choice of jurisdiction to the extent that's possible, which is not always easy in a smart contract environment. But one of the, I suppose, features of that smart contract environment that is slightly, slightly different from a jurisdiction perspective, that sort of runs out of the fact that, uh, as you mentioned, Dan, these smart contracts often run on distributed ledger technology. And because of that, you have this rather interesting concept of on-chain dispute resolution can you explain what, what that means? Sure. Well, um, I mean, on-chain dispute resolution involves essentially an automated 
dispute resolution mechanism in one shape or form, allowing the outcomes of disputes to be enforced automatically without requiring external human intervention in assisting the enforcement to a degree. So for example, mechanisms whereby monetary compensations automatically paid into the successful party's digital wallet, or where remedial action such as reversing trades is automatically affected within the DLT system without the need to resort to the more traditional off-chain enforcement procedures, i.e. get your judgment in a court, take it to the court, give it to you, and then get it enforced against assets, you know, off-chain real-world assets. And, you know, examples of these sorts of tools could include, you know, an online sort of arbitration whereby the dispute resolution procedures, which may or may not be similar to traditional arbitration, are incorporated into the smart contract. Or you could have crowdsource models whereby anonymous users or nodes on the system vote the outcome with a reward payable to those in the majority. Obviously, the issue being whether that's open to abuse. And, you know, you can have potentially, and more so going forward, AI-powered automated solutions whereby predictive analytics determine the outcome. So you could, in that instance, and it sounds science fiction-y, but, you know, it's probably around the corner at some point, you could have an AI system which was able to assess the sort of the likely prospects of success based on, you know, previous examples which are programmed into it. And it could say, well, actually, in this instance, the claimant is 75% likely to succeed and therefore they get the award. And that's something that Sir Geoffrey Voss, who's master of the roles, very senior in, in the UK courts, has been saying in a number of speeches, it is the future, particularly for the sort of the lower value, less complex cases to enable parties to program their dispute into a computer system and have an automated result. Yeah, crikey. And as someone who makes his living as a, as a lawyer resolving disputes, the thought of disputes being resolved without any lawyers whatsoever, you know, it sounds terrible, certainly. <laughs> to us, it doesn't sound like the most attractive proposition, but, you know, trying to put that bias to one side, I think there are some legitimate concerns about how these kind of mechanisms might work in the real world. You know, if just going back to what you're saying in, in terms of how these might be resolved and who might be resolved. And so if, if the decision maker in your dispute is, is not an AI analyzing the prospects of success, but the decision makers are other people within the same system, you know, are those people going to have the right motivation to reach a decision? If there's a reward for getting in the successful outcome, then how does that sort of skew the decision-making process. And then also, you know, how would these kind of mechanisms deal with some of the things that you see in more complex disputes, you know, where there are disputes as to just simple matters of fact, did something happen or did something not happen? Or where you got arguments as to the effect of the law or the interpretation of a particular contract within the law. You know, there are certain issues that, you know, just instinctively as a lawyer, you think, it's very difficult for an on-chain dispute mechanism to resolve in the same way that an off-chain dispute mechanism might do. So I think in the short term, at least, there's probably still going to be an attractiveness to having an off-chain dispute resolution mechanism. Yeah, I think that's right. But this this idea you know, is gaining increasing prominence and consideration. And there's sort of a hybrid of 
this sort of off, on-chain and off-chain way of dealing with things. So, for example, in, in 2021, the UK Jurisdiction Task Force published its own digital dispute resolution rules, which parties can incorporate into their on-chain digital relationships and contracts. And what that does, I mean, they're intended to enable rapid, cost-effective resolution of legal disputes concerning these new types of technologies, such as crypto assets, smart contracts, DLT. And what they do is they provide for English law, they provide for arbitration seated in England under the 1996 Arbitration Act. And by doing that, then the provisions of that act apply automatically. They're sort of brought in without having to write them in. And they've got some pretty novel and interesting features, such as um, you know, very short timeframes for disputes to be resolved. So your dispute's supposed to be resolved in around 30 days of the arbitrator being appointed. So that's the off-chain aspect of this. There is going to be an off-chain arbitrator, a person, who is appointed to settle these disputes, but it's supposed to be really quick, rapid justice. There's no automatic right to an oral hearing. And relevant to the point that we're just discussing and where the on-chain aspect comes in into this, there is the potential for arbitral decisions made under those rules to be enforced on-chain. So using a private key, so the arbitrator is given a private key and the arbitrator can use that to modify or cancel any digital asset relevant to the dispute. That'll depend on how the network's set up, but that's the thinking. That's the thinking behind it. But sort of as you said, I mean, given the nature of these rules and the speed at which a decision would be made, they're unlikely to be suitable for larger, more complex disputes. And there's actually, it's unclear whether there's been that much in the way of take up in the market. It's sort of there and it's there to show the UK's intent that it's you know, happy to grapple with these things. But there's a reluctance, and I think an, an understandable reluctance by you know, businesses to sort of trust these quick mechanisms. I mean, I think what you would be getting, and I think you know, Sir Jeffrey Voss would be the first to admit, what you're getting with these things, the decision isn't going to be as well thought out and procedurally or all the aspects, all the relevant facts might not come to light as if you were to take a normal arbitral you know, proceeding to, to settle your dispute. But those proceedings can take a year, two years sometimes. So what you're getting as the trade-off is something done very quickly and very cheaply. And for smaller transactions, the thinking is that that aspect will be attractive enough to entice at least some to put their faith in these rules or, or, or rules of a similar nature. Yeah. And the, the way you talk about it just there is sort of, it puts in mind a little bit of the adjudication mechanism that you see in construction contracts, which again is a form of getting to a quick decision, you know, and sometimes in disputes, actually, you know, my, my experience is getting a quick decision by a third party is sometimes more important than getting the right decision because having a bit of certainty as to which way it goes, you know, there's an advantage in just the sort of the speed the speed element in the, you know, the digital dispute resolution rules that have been proposed, I think they, they recognise that. I think one of the points that's interesting looking at those rules and just trying to work out why they have been proposed in, in the way they have is the reason why arbitration in particular is a method that's included within those rules. Uh, my guess uh, is that that is because the, the jurisdiction task force were thinking about the issues that arise in respect of enforcement of uh, decisions taken when you're looking at smart contracts. So if you think back to the description of how the different systems work, one of the feature of the systems built on DLT is that it's probably going to be unclear at the outset 
precisely who the participants in that system will be, and just as importantly for these purposes, where they're going to be based. Even in a permission system where there's an administrator who has the right to allow people to participate or not, there's not necessarily going to be the ability to control where the participants are based and therefore in which jurisdiction they will be in. And, you know, that goes to how you enforce against the assets of those people in the event that you get a decision against them. So the reason probably arbitration is attractive in that regard is as much as anything may be down to the ease of enforcement. Generally speaking, it is easier to enforce an arbitration award than it is to enforce a judgment made by a court. And that's primarily because of uh, something called the, the New York Convention, which is an international treaty. I think it's signed up by about 160 states, something like that. And there is an agreement under the New York Convention that arbitral awards will be enforced. It is easier to enforce an arbitral award and where you have these kind of transactions and systems with participants based in all kinds of jurisdictions that are unpredictable, you can see the attraction of arbitration in that context. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you said, the New York Convention means that it can be easier to enforce arbitral awards cross-border than court decisions, where, you know, with court decisions, you would need some kind of treaty or reciprocity ends into between countries. Well, a lot of those countries have signed up to the New York Convention, which gets around that issue. And so we might see arbitration becoming increasingly popular as a dispute resolution mechanism in the context of smart legal contracts relating to DLT with cross-border participants for that reason. And another key benefit of arbitration is it enables parties to tailor the proceedings to their dispute. So one example of that is the you know, UK digital dispute resolution rules that we mentioned earlier with its short timeframes. But equally, with other forms of arbitration, parties can select arbitrators with specific expertise Courts try to allocate to the correct judge, but where parties can select them, that gives a bit more comfort, I think, in some instances. You can tailor your bespoke procedures and you also can agree to keep proceedings confidential. That said, on the other hand, the powers of arbitrators can be more limited to those of the international courts and you might need to look to the courts to assist in an arbitral process. And it's also true that in a number of jurisdictions, including England and Wales, they're, they're looking to make sure that their courts are seen to be able to grapple with issues arising from smart contracts and DLT, because courts that can do that are going to be increasingly in demand as these, the use of these technologies increases. And in a sense, the courts of a country are, are a business. You know, in the UK, because our courts are well respected, that feeds into the legal market, the strong legal market that we've got here. And you attract disputes to your jurisdiction, which equally attracts business to your jurisdiction. So the battle between court litigation and arbitration to pick up these sorts of disputes is far from over. And I think we're going to see developments in that space as both sort of both forum tussle to make themselves as attractive as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I think there'll be a few twists and turns along the way. So just wrapping up then, I think, you know, we've touched on the fact that smart contracts bring with them, you know, there are a host of issues to think about. Some of those are, are novel to smart contracts, you know, particularly things around the use and interpretation of code. And some of them are issues that are sort of common to traditional 
contracts, but they just might play out in, in different ways. I think, you know, from a, one of the key takeaways, yeah, a smart contract is still a contract. It has a contract that will have legal implications and consequences. And therefore, you know, the need to obtain legal advice in relation to a smart contract is the same need uh, as to obtain legal advice to any other contract, really. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if the nature of the relationship is essentially a contractual one, a court, or, or at least uh, the, the English court at least, is likely to conclude that a contract has formed, even if there's little or nothing in the way of natural language. And so in those circumstances, not having a natural language document setting out the key terms of the contract is likely to be a considerable disadvantage to the parties, because it's going to result in additional time and cost to establish what the terms agreed upon were before the court even can then turn its mind to whether there's been a breach of those terms. So, you know, it's not the case of saying, oh, well, you know, by not codifying our contract or our agreement or our transaction in the form of a written contract, an, you know, an intelligible, understandable contract, and trying to do everything on the code, you know, we're going to you know, get away with not having to deal with courts. That's not right. If there's a dispute and a party wants to enforce its rights against another party, then that party will look for a way of doing that. And if they can't do that on chain automatically, then they're going to look to a court. And it's much better if you've got a, a proper codified set of rules in order to, you know, by way of a contract, in order for the parties to do that, than the courts having to almost make it up as they go along. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, when we're advising clients, certainly for more valuable contracts, I think the advice has always got to be, you're better off having a natural language document. You know, from, from a dispute perspective, in terms of how to avoid disputes, the thing you don't want is ambiguity. You don't want ambiguity as to what your contract means or ambiguity as to how a court or tribunal is going to interpret that contract You know, later down the line. So the more certainty you can get at the outset, the better. A natural language document um, is going to give you a greater chance of, of getting that. I think, Dan, that probably brings us to the end of the time we have for this podcast. Thanks again for your help and contribution. And thank you to the listener for listening to this podcast. I'd like to keep a lookout for the next podcast in this series, where we're going to be looking at the impact of sort of specialist and bespoke hardware in complex IT projects. We'll wrap up there. And thanks very much. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Phil.